Hey, it's Bill Simmons. Thanks for checking out this feed of my favorite interviews and best guests over the last seven years. Whether it's your first time or you're already in a deep dive, make sure you head to billsimmonsinterviews.theringer.com for the entire archive. You can sort by genre, year, and more to easily navigate all your favorite people. Again, that is billsimmonsinterviews.theringer.com. Enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually we're great, but together we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian, tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Monday morning here, Sundance, here with uh, the guy who is widely credited for being the first Sundance breakout star, right? 1989, 30 years ago? 30 Steven years. Soderbergh. Still walking around. When you were here in 1989, overwhelming? What was it like? Well, was it the, I mean, it couldn't have been even 120th as big as it is no, now. No, it was very different. It was called the U.S. Film Festival at yeah. that point. Um, and hadn't become the market that it became the year after yeah. Sex Lies. You so, started it. Well, uh, there were a couple of films that were here that it was a good year that year. There were some really good movies. Yeah. Um, but it certainly, it certainly was part of a, a, a wave that I think was inevitable in the late 80s, early 90s. You know, the 80s was not a great period for studio films they kind of took over the, all of my heroes like crashed and burned yeah. in the late 70s studios took over um and it became a much more corporate um business and i f it felt like there was a hunger on the part of audiences to see things that were handmade and so we we sort of surfed that i'm so fascinated by that stretch from 85 to 89 basically because you know the 70s are so romanticized we Kyle and I watched, don't ask me why, because I've seen it a hundred million times, but The Godfather and Godfather 2 was on AMC last night. And we just got sucked into Godfather 2 with the commercials. And it's like, it's like three, it's three plus hours long. He's telling two different, two different narratives that it just shouldn't have worked. And it's probably the best movie ever made from start to finish. Um, but I was thinking like, God, like what, what is that movie now? 
Is that like a, like I don't a know. comic you know, book hero? It's, it's hard <laughs> to say where, you know, I grew up with that dream of working, having filmmakers that were independent-minded working in the studio system. Yeah. You know, during that period from 66 to 78, 79, you know, all of my favorite filmmakers were working for the studios. Um, so I was—I didn't grow up as a snob, yeah. and I wanted to work in that system as well. I just grew up in a suburban subdivision in Baton Rouge and didn't know anyone. Yeah. So I had to come at it through uh, a different path. But there was a period from sex lives, I'd say, through the mid-aughts where that seemed to be working. You had some really good filmmakers working in the system, and then it kind of went away. I think 89 to probably 95 is it even as the years pass, but it feels this way now, but I think even like 25 years from now, I think those five, six years are going to be remembered a lot. Like we remember the seventies. I know somebody, I got an interview for a book that somebody just wrote about 1999. Oh and, yeah. I heard about the, the list of films that came yeah. out that year and you look at it and it's, it's a pretty great list. We do uh, a podcast called The Rewatchables, and I was looking at that because there's a lot of, we like to tie it in sometimes to the anniversaries and stuff. It, 99 was ridiculous. Yeah, it was a it's, good year. And all kinds of movies, too. Yeah. And movies that, um, you know, like we we did this, we have a Rewatchables podcast coming tomorrow about this movie called Proof of Life that I felt like actually was a great movie that didn't get it yeah. just due, which is why we did it. And it's probably like, it comes out in 2000. It's got Russell Crowe at like, his A-list apex, right? Like yep. Gladiator just came out. Tony Gilroy script. Right, Tony Gilroy. And it's just the kind of movie that if you put 2000 Russell Crowe into 2019, he's wearing a cape. Yeah, He's not doing proof of life. No, he's, everybody's wearing tights. I he's know. plastic man. I know. You know, and it's like that part scares me for where things are going. But then the stuff you're doing, like I saw High Flying Bird. You filmed it on iPhones. Like you're still experimenting. It's really good. It's really interesting. And that gives me hope that, you know, I still feel like the experimentation's there. It's just I wonder like, can Godfather Two still happen? I don't know. I don't either. Um but I'm all whenever I get into a, a despairing mood about that stuff, I'm also aware that as I'm feeling that way somewhere in some room somebody's making something that none of us know about yet. Right. And it's going to come out and blow us away. So, well, you know, I'm always hopeful. There's somebody out there. I'm always fascinated by the the camaraderie, the directors of those seven, like that Spielberg, Lucas, Jenner, Coppola, all those guys. A lot of them were, were friends. They looked out for each other. You did not have that experience in the late 80s, right? Everybody was much more on their own. And eventually... A Eventually, bit. it seemed like it happened. A little bit. I mean, there's a, I think, a very, I think there's a good feeling amongst the people from around that period. We were going to festivals together, and you'd run into people. So in 89. So who were those people? Well, that year, it would have been Jim Jarmer, Spike Lee. Um, we were running into each other a lot, and it was... It was fun for me. You know, Spike and Jim were one of a handful of filmmakers during the 80s who were actually making interesting stuff yeah. independently. Um, Jim in particular was very forward-looking and, and sort of legendary within independent film circles because he owns all his negatives. 
like, oh, for really? all of his movies. Jesus. And for, for people like me, that's like, oh, my God, like, how do you even do that? Um, so and he's still cranking away. So like I said, I, if you told me 30 years from now, you're going to be back here with with another movie that's that's in my mind. You can draw a direct line from Sex Lies to High Flying Bird. Yeah. In terms of its attitude and its approach to character, its willingness to embrace a movie that's about two people in a room for the most part talking. Um, you know, I'm still into that stuff. Why iPhones? To to inspire young filmmakers that they can use anything they want to film a movie, or like what no, was it I that mean, attracted it's you? It's a it's a combination of things. One, I think uh, I'd like people to. It's. I don't think people are aware of how advanced this technology really is. Yeah. And what you can do with it for projects like High Flying Bird, it's it's the right tool because of the ease of of putting the camera where you want and how quickly you can move. So if I had a traditional camera package, even on High Flying Bird, there were certain things that I wouldn't have been able to do exactly the way I wanted. Yeah. Um, so the film, I think, would not have been any better. It might have been worse. It certainly would have taken longer. Um, and so going forward, I think now we're about to be in a space where you're going to have a phone about a camera about the size of a phone with a full-size sensor, and that'll be a game changer. Because what's great about the iPhone is I can put it anywhere. Literally, I can Velcro it to a ceiling. Yeah, I can do whatever I want, and that's that's very liberating. Um, but it's not. It's it's it was perfect for this. You know who sees that? Kids. Yeah, I have a 13 year old daughter and 11 year old son, and I live in L.A., which. You know, there's I, I think LA is a little more artistic than most cities and you have a lot of kids of parents who are in the film industry or the producers or directors or actors or whatever. And I'm amazed by some of the little films that my my kids friends made and my and my kids have been in them, you know, and they're like, Yeah, we what'd you do all day? Oh, we shot a horror movie. You did? And then they show it and it's like Wow, this is like not terrible. No, I if I wish I'd had these tools. Oh my I god! Starting. I think that generation when they hit like nineteen to twenty two, these kids that have been because all the editing stuff is great now, and they, these kids are gonna have a sense of narrative structure, how to cut stuff, how to edit. That there's no generation that's had that. No, no, it's pretty, it's pretty incredible how quickly this technology is advanced and how. Literally with a laptop, you can you can make a really really good looking movie. Like you really don't need much more than than what's in your pocket, right? And some software, and off you go. I've seen projects where people did incredibly elaborate visual effects, and it's all Adobe After Effects. Like it's, they're all doing it on their laptop. What would you say if I told you that Sex Lies and Videotape is my mom's favorite movie, like ever? Well, would that explain at least some of my uh, eccentricities? There's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> um, tell her it really that, is. That's hilarious. It comes on cable every once in a while. And she's like, "Sex Lies and Videotape is oh on HBO lately. It's just amazing. That's so just strange. an amazing movie." I'm like, "Do you realize how weird this is? That this is your favorite movie?" She's like, it's just. James Bader is incredible. That's um, that's pretty unexpected. It's really held up. It does not feel dated. 
It's weird because it would. It's super it would, intense. You, I would. I would. To me, it seems very quaint now. Yeah. That that like oh he's got some tapes like when you when it seems like a Jane Austen novel to me now right, compared right. to what we're going through. Oh my god. Um, but I think if if it's if it's still able to hold someone's attention, it's because ultimately the the, the technology is not really the point of it ultimately no it's it's in this case a way of someone creating a barrier between themselves and other people we're still going through that now it's just there's a lot more ways to create those barriers yeah um but i, I mean the part that feels dated are you know the cassette, cassette tapes and, yeah and the, and the clothes, stuff like that but i think that movie now, as the years have gone on, it's really a movie about sisters and the competitiveness with sisters and just how people can be super close but also do terrible things to each other but then forgive themselves in the end because they're related. Well, and also you you the, you had four characters who are about to reach an inflection point. Yeah. That, but they don't know it's coming. And so I think that watching that start to – turn and you realize oh this is literally going to be one of those my life before this and my life after yeah. this but they're all oblivious to the fact that this is about to happen um and i think that's satisfying to watch that's one of your favorite you gravitate toward that idea in different you've done that in a couple of different movies like yeah here are these people here it's about to change yeah we're about to go to point b well i guess i guess i'm also to to bring this all back to something like high flying bird yeah you know i think we all we all go through life trying to exert some amount of control over what happens to us um and it's mostly illusory like it's it's yeah. we often are are confronted with the hard fact that the amount of things that we can control is actually very small. Um, and forget about if it's your family or anybody close to you, like that's just not happening. But it's clear that's something that I keep, I keep returning to characters who think through an act of will that they can change the situation or the world. Yeah. Um, and usually come up somewhat short. Do you think back how the arc of your career, which has been written about a million times, you have this huge hit, then you have the quote unquote slump, then you come roaring back. Like, do you think that it's been two decades since out of sight? And then all of a sudden you're, you're in the best director category for two different films at the same time, which I don't think it happened for what, like 60 years. Like been a while. I mean, that got, that went so fast. What did it feel like in the moment to um, just have your career flip like that? It was, it was, I was trying to sort of keep my eyes forward. The, the years between Sex, Lies and Out of Sight were actually really crucial to my development yeah. as a filmmaker. And I had the luxury of making five movies in a row that nobody saw and most people didn't like. But they were, they were each really important steps in me trying to figure out what lane should I be driving in? Like, what kind of filmmaker am I? And part of that process was determining ultimately that I wasn't a writer, that I had written, but I wasn't a writer. I wrote to get in because yeah. nobody can stop you from sitting in front of a keyboard. But once I let go of that, and it's a it's a real issue for young writer directors, they all want to 
emulate their heroes. Yeah. And I realized my well's not that deep when it comes to writing. It's just not. And as soon as I understood that, everything got better immediately. And so when you look at those projects, you look at like that run of five films from out of sight through oceans. Yeah. Great scripts, great screenwriters, like everything got better. Right. That makes sense. I also think, and I, I tell this to people sometimes, you know, I've had successes and failures. The failures were really important. You learn, you learn a shitload from them. I wouldn't, I don't regret anything that, that I've done that didn't work or didn't work as well as I thought it would, because you, you take what, what you get out of it. You're still going to get something. No, the successes, as it turns out, are kind of a mystery yeah. and, and impossible to conjure at will. And you just have to surround yourself with people that, that can at least give you the best shot at having something work. So it's kind of, I always viewed it as success as this kind of mysterious person you spent a night with and then is gone the next morning. You don't know anything about right. them. Failures like the family that comes over and won't leave. And you eventually have to like forcefully kick out of the house. Yeah. Um, but I, if the business has changed in a way that that makes me feel for the generation that's coming up now, it is that I, I had the luxury of those failures. Like you, you can't do that now if you're a young filmmaker. You cannot make five movies in a row that nobody sees. You're in jail. Yeah. So that I feel, and that is, I think, a necessary part of of anyone's evolution. Nobody. Well, very rare. It's very rare. People don't emerge full blown right out of the gate. It's 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 really really rare that that's the case. You need time to develop. Do you think online Twitter, just the way movies are uh, dissected now, would uh, would have been harmful for you in the mid nineties if that stuff was there? If it had been around prior to Sex Lies, I think I would have gotten into a lot of trouble because I was such a punk. Yeah. about what I thought was good and what I thought wasn't good. And um, yeah, I would, have, I would have gotten in some serious hot water, I think, just mouthing off about stuff. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. Well, especially like, you know, you spend a year on a movie or something, then it comes out and you get these people shitting on it. And yeah, if look, you're in your 20s, like, the, the good news is that if you've done, if you've done any sort of self-education about how that stuff works you'll go back and find that many of your favorite movies that have had a huge impact on you were not liked um certainly yeah. weren't successful when they came out and that that's just part of the that's part of the thing i've been i've been i've had a very kind of i look at it as sort of it's relevant to me in the sense that it can affect the commercial life of the film if you get good reviews or you get bad reviews, depending on what kind of movie it is. But I've never taken it on as any kind of um, definitive uh, uh, truth about what what we made. Right. Like I just I just have never taken it on like that. By the time I've finished something. I've been through a process with friends and family that's, 
you know, speaking of Tony Gilroy, when you invite Tony Gilroy to see a rough cut of one of your movies, you better you, you better be prepared for what's going to happen. He's giving you the real notes. He's, yeah. yeah, I mean, he's incapable of hiding how he feels about something. Um, and that's the good news. And, and the, the even better news is if you're in a situation in which you need help and you have a problem that needs to be solved, he will roll up his sleeves and help you. Um, so that uh, there's a group of people that I call upon and I have to take a deep breath before I do. Um, I was going to ask you about that. How many people is that? Probably 20, 25 um, spread out. And I had one director friend of mine uh, on a movie finished. The movie was finished, basically. We had delivered it. And I, he asked, you know, oh, you're screening it. I want to see it. And he watched it. And he essentially grabbed me by the lapels when it was over. And he said, you need to throw the score of that movie out. He goes, it's. I don't know what its commercial potential is. As it turns out, the movie had none. But he goes, <laughs> it's, it's ruining. It's it's one ask too many, um, and he was right. He was right. I threw the score out and had one completely rewritten, and that was not something I wanted to hear in that moment. But he was right. My, uh, I was friends with, with William Goldman who recently passed away yeah. and there was all these different stories about him. And one of the ones that I thought was great was about, um, he saw silence of the lambs, like a cut of it. And it was like pretty much locked. And he was like, it's great, great. You should take out that part with the FBI director when the, but when he gets his jobs in trouble, like they just take it out. And, uh, and Demi was like, the, the film was locked and it was in his head. And he's like, let's go back in and see if we should take that out. And they took it out and Goldman was right. Right. Because that's like, it sounds like over and over again, you hear that as a theme with directors and storytellers. Like sometimes the, the one thing you take out is the most important part of the whole process. It's, it's, it's great that that process is impossible to quantify or, or predict because it keeps it fresh, but it's also super frustrating because you reach a certain point. You're like, well, I've been doing this for a while. I feel like I should be able to go to the hoop. Right, right, right. You know, like, but as it turns out, every movie's different. The culture, the moment in the culture is different. You just don't know what is gonna land and what, it's, it's, I'm always surprised. Things you think are super clear to people are not. And then things that you think, oh, that's maybe that's, um, Maybe we're being, you know, a little too oblique with this. And people are like, oh, no, I two minutes in, I knew that. So it's a, it's a, strange, it's a strange process, but um, never boring. When did you feel like you had command all your pitches? Like, was there a movie where you're just like, I know how to do this? Well, Out of Sight was the first opportunity to really put into use what I felt I'd learned in the years between sex lies and that. Yeah. Um, it was, it was a watershed movie for me in a lot of ways. Most importantly, um, it had to, regardless of how it performed, it was important that it be perceived creatively as a success that I could work within the studio system with movie stars and make a movie that is solid. Um, so I felt under a lot of personal pressure while we were making it. And I had to do a Jedi mind trick on myself on set 
to pretend as though I was on the set of Schizopolis right. and that I could do whatever I wanted, which is what I did. Yeah. I just went, it's 1971, I can do whatever I want. And, and I followed that and I had the support of my cast and my producers in the studio. Um, so I was very fortunate. But that, once that happened and I was on the other side of it, I felt like, okay, let's go. Like I set up a bunch of projects right on top of each other because I felt, I feel, I'm seeing the ball. Like, let's, yeah. let's go. And so that, you know, five movies in three and a half years, that was a good run. I have no idea why Out of Sight didn't do better when it came out. It really uh, had everything. Summer. We weren't supposed to come out. It should have been like an October summer. movie? It was supposed to come out in October. And they, did they move it up? No, what happened was Meet Joe Black was behind schedule. Meet Joe Black was supposed to come oh. out in the summer. And they were behind. That's and bullshit. So, what are you going to do? My, the head of the studio who gave me the job said, I got a problem here. I need a summer movie. You're done. You're ready. It's a good movie. And I went, okay, it's your call. Uh, um, but it doesn't feel like a summer movie. <laughs> I mean, in a weird way, it worked out, but it probably didn't feel that way at the time because it's a beloved movie. No, it's the, the awesome. perception of it is that it was it was successful. That's yeah. the good news. In retrospect, nobody realizes like until we got crushed by Armageddon. Actually, oh Jesus, um, yeah. So, um, but again, it it did for me what it needed to do. It did for George what it needed to do. We 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 hooked up at exactly the right moment we both needed this movie to, yeah. to work and so that started a relationship that turned out to be very fruitful so it was a good that was a that was a big one i i had sorkin was on this podcast two weeks ago and we were talking about timing and luck and like how i mean it's not a secret but it's just how incredibly important it is to catch people at the right point sometimes with movies totally Clo you clooney and j-lo at probably like the absolute perfect time you would have wanted them to make that movie. I like I I still was like discovering J Lo. You know, I'd seen her a couple of things, but I didn't know that much about her. That was the first time I really felt like oh, I'm spending two hours with J Lo. And then Clooney was basically the ER doctor who hadn't really made it big in a movie yet. And we didn't know if he could carry one. And then it's like, oh yeah, he can carry one. Yeah, well, I think we were both viewed as people with potential. Yeah. And and the questions were starting to come up like, and when are we going to see what we think we see? And so, yeah, he and I bonded very quickly over that immediately. Like we had very similar taste in movies anyway. So it just, we just sort of fell into this very, very fast. Was it a coincidence that you just start working with huge stars after that? Did you gravitate to talent? Um, no, I think it's, it's a matter of understanding what's going to be best for the project um, and not shying away from the fact that movie stars are a very important tool <laughs> yeah. in your arsenal. They've been with us since the beginning of cinema. Um, there's nothing wrong with putting movie stars in a movie. It's only a problem when they're misused yeah. or it seems inappropriate or it distorts uh, the project somehow. But um, there's nothing, I think, for an audience Nothing more satisfying than seeing one of their favorite movie stars in a role that you feel like they were born to play. Like, that's that's like a real dopamine hit. Yes, I remember Tarantino was saying about Pulp Fiction, how he used to, he loved John Travolta. He just felt like he was a movie star. It's like, I really want John Travolta in this movie. Yeah. I like John Travolta. And there's, it's really hard for an actor to pass that point where 
people feel that way about them. But like when you had Julie Roberts, what was that like? That was 2000, right? Aaron yep. Brockovich. And she was just, she made all some strange choices in the 90s, but then kind of went back to being Julia Roberts, my best friend's wedding and Notting Hill. And it's like, oh, Julia Roberts. Yeah. And then you hit her right as it's like, oh, she can do this too. And uh, that's like the most unique performance of her career. Because she's Julia Roberts, but she's also, you know. It was, yeah, you're absolutely right. That I was very aware that that the timing of this was was perfect. It was exactly what she wanted to be doing. Um, so she saw very clearly um, what the movie could do for her creatively. I had just come off. I'd been approached about doing Aaron Brockovich while we were doing Out of Sight because it was yeah. the same set of producers. They described it. So I, m I remember where I was standing on the set of the of the mansion uh, at the end of the film, Albert Brooks' mansion, oh, as yeah. they pitched me this idea between setups. And I literally said, that sounds like the worst idea I've ever heard <laughs> for a film. Why would you think I would want to do that? Year and a half later, I'm in the middle of editing hell with the limey, which I'm not, it's not clear at the point that they reapproached me, that, that we were going to be able to figure that out. Yeah. Like it was, it was one of the most terrifying creative periods of my life, the months of editing the limey. Yeah. They came back to me, they had a new draft of the script and they came back to me and suddenly a movie like that seemed to be the perfect thing that I should be doing. It's going in one direction. Yeah. Like, it's very simple. All I've got to do is make sure I've got the camera in the right spot to capture this performance and we're all going to be fine. So that that 18 month period, you know, I just needed to move into another direction. But when I think back that, that wow, that could have easily not have happened, um, I was lucky. Traffic couldn't have been as, uh, as, as easy. No, that was, we didn't, Those have, are tough we didn't have the money until three weeks before shooting because the consensus was no drug movies ever made money, which was true. Yeah. And so every studio turned it down and it was Graham King and Barry Diller at USA Films who came in three weeks before and said, okay, we'll do it. Um, it felt, it was... Scarface didn't make money? I guess I not. I don't think they viewed that as a drug yeah. movie. That was, <laughs> right. you know, kind of De Palma, Pacino, extravaganza. Out of control. Yeah, yeah I mean, um, it felt to us like a zeitgeist film. Like, it was an election year. Yeah. It felt like this this issue was like building like people wanted to talk about it the sad thing is and we sensed this when we were making the film um you could make that movie every five years because nothing's changing in, in some ways things are worse um so at the time it felt it has to happen now if we miss this window it's going to close and we'll never get to make this um and the funny thing was that traffic for me traffic and aaron um, were not hard. Oceans was hard. Oceans was hard. Why was Oceans hard? It was a new grammar for me. It required a new set of skills. Um, and I was terrified. And it was like I spent more time on set trying to figure out how to do something than I ever had before. I was really 
It was hard. It, and so the funny thing is, you're you talking were, about the look or dealing with the actors. Oh or no, everything? the actors were fine. The yeah. script was perfect. It was just you know I, I felt it deserved a, a real bravura kind of visual style, and it was just I hadn't really made anything quite like that before, and it took me about it took me about a week before the math of it finally became apparent to me. And I realized like, oh, okay, the geometry of how all these shots should be designed and built and put together is this, you know. Um, so it was, it, it, was, it was just the biggest thing I'd ever been a part of, you know, it was back, what, $89 million, which to me was like, it's a lot of money. Yeah, how um, much was sex size videotape? A million. Like <laughs> so, um, but it's... The Oceans films for me are a kind of movie I really enjoy doing, even though they're tricky, because I get to play in a way that I don't really get to play on other kinds of films. Yeah. They, they can handle a lot of um, trickery and sort of, you know, those are as close to comic book movies as I can get. Like, that's it. And I viewed them sort of as comic book films in a way. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. A lot of famous people in that movie. Yeah, I mean, we, George and I, one of the things that we, I think, bonded over was the no asshole rule so yeah i was gonna say it's almost like putting together a basketball team where you want to make sure you don't have like the cancer yeah so we people were vetted you <laughs> Interesting. Know, and 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 i'm glad because they were it was fun it was fun to watch them together because they they really they really liked each other yeah a lot they never left the set you know they just they enjoyed hanging out um and i'm really I think looking back, um, it's a real testament to uh, the late, great Jerry Weintraub to to be able to have retained that cast 
and made three movies in six years, that's hard. With all the choices that they have. That's hard. Like I, I, well, it seems like I just challenge like somebody it. to do that now. <laughs> like it's, it, and it's because they wanted to do it. But that's Jerry kind of, you know, keeping everybody on the boil. Yeah, to borrow the basketball analogy, that's like keeping the Warriors together. Yeah. And preventing Durant from leaving. Do you leaving. think they're splitting apart? I, I, I worry about where Durant heads because I, I think there's a chance he leaves. Really? I do. Interesting. Yeah. I think uh, it's really hard to keep a good team together where uh, – it's this it's this world now where you touched on a little bit in your movie, but it's this world now where everybody wants their team and they want to be the guy on the team. And um Do you think that really like that beats for them like winning the championship? Well the but the thing is if you've won a couple times, then that becomes less important, right? right. Because at some point you're thinking I, I think the media and the fans care about the legacy stuff a lot more than the players do. Hmm. They just look at it like well, if I'm the best guy in this team, then everything goes through me and right. I'm the guy. I mean, Kyrie left LeBron. LeBron was the second best player of all time. Yeah. Right. So I I think there's a lot of dynamics in play. When you make the high flying bird sequel, I think there's some I think there's some stuff you could have in there about uh Well it'd be hard because young superstars. The the you know it's the difficulty now in trying to make a realistic sports film because none of the leagues will cooperate with anything that isn't a Valentine to them. Right. So we dealt with that with all the documentaries we've done. Yeah. Yeah. It's really frustrating because now you can't make a realistic sports film about what's really going on. Like most people, when I see sports movies where the teams are fake, I'm like not really engaged. Um, but you just can't. So. It's only kind of worked one time any given Sunday. They really put a lot of time and effort into the uh, the names of the teams yeah. and the uniforms, and it was like, all right, I'm kind of in on the yeah. on these fake teams we've created. But yeah, in your movie, you were using they were saying NY instead of New York and stuff like that. Was that intentional? Oh yeah, yeah, oh yeah. Um, so the what's, NBA what's was also like, interesting. Is you know we wanted to have some real sportscasters in the movie, and the ESPN was like, we don't want anything to do with this. So we went to Fox, and they were like, great. I thought that was an interesting All I'm inversion. saying is I was right here. I was ready for if, if there was a podcast with the agent or something. Right. You, I would have filmed the well, podcast. Well, that's good to know. Yeah, for the sequel, I'm available. Okay. So you did you go to the NBA and they were just like, no? No, no there was no point. I knew I knew we were what kind of territory we were in. Um, and it wasn't really, it, it, given what it was, um, it wasn't really necessary. Like it was... Yeah, it's really hard to notice unless you're looking for that stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's it's it really is asking the movie is just asking a lot of what if questions. And and when somebody asked me the other day, well, you know, what would you hope the takeaway from this movie would be for people watching it? And I said, well, what I would hope is when they watch a basketball game now, they really think about the the lives of those players. Like right. that these are these are people. And they, they're like, the, the, you're watching them on the court. They have another 22 hours that they've got to deal with, you know, and it's pretty intense. Like talk, interviewing those three guys, um, it was clear, like the level of scrutiny and pressure that are under is just extraordinary. So for those of you who don't know out there, he, you interspersed Carl Anthony Towns, Reggie Jackson, and Donovan Mitchell. And Donovan Mitchell. 
and they're just kind of pop in every once in a while. How long did you interview those guys for? I think each one was about 25 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. To half an hour. I got some good stuff. I should yeah. probably like put something together. They were, they were incredibly generous, you know, with their experience. And, and it was fascinating to hear them talk about how, how the game is now and how it's changed even in a generation for young players. And they talked about sort of what we were saying that there's, there's very little tolerance now for people who are kind of toxic or don't do the work. Like this idea of this, this, this cliche of like the savant player who can just like walk onto the court and create magic. They're like, that doesn't exist. Well, there's also, there's too many dynamics in place now for if you're an asshole or if, if there's some sort of power struggle between the stars or whatever, it just comes out now. And, you know, 30, 40 years ago, we still had people covering the teams, but it there wasn't was, like it is now yeah. where people would just be like sources. Oh, my God. So, think, think, so of, and so, think about and the so Yankees and so like from the other. 70s. Oh, my in God. The Bronx Zoo. In, in today's environment. I mean, people be nuts. Would, I, I don't know how they would function. The system's kind of designed for these guys not to get along long term. Um, now, you could argue basketball's always been that way because you go back and it's like, you know, Shaq and Penny broke up. Kobe right. and Shaq broke up. Oh, Michael Jordan and the Bulls. Like, they just decided they don't want him anymore. Um, so well, it's, it's just when really you, hard. When you think about it, it's I think part of that is driven by it's a physically intimate game. It's yeah. a small team. Yeah, you're 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 like right there, like your your pals are like sweating all over you. You're like touching people. Like it's a very intimate game. What I like about it is, I was saying to somebody the other day, it's as fast as a sport can get without becoming truly violent. Yeah, and so that's why it's so fun to watch. But it's there there aren't the opportunities like there are in some of the other sports to like. Be over on this side of the field. <laughs> yeah. Put me out wide so I don't have to talk to that guy. Right. You know, but here you're just, you're in the pit. And so I would imagine that's, it's a much more, you know, emotionally uh, intense experience for those five people on the court. But it's such a, it's interesting to look at the game. I don't know how you feel about how the, it seems to me like it's, there are too many games given how many teams make the playoffs. Like 100%. if you're going to have 82 games, you can't have 60% of the league going to the playoffs. <laughs> I agree. That's why nobody starts watching until March, you know, basically. Cause you're like, what were these first 60 games well, the, for? It's weird that everybody's watching, but it, there's no urgency with the standings. Right. But I, I've been amazed that the, the biggest thing that's changed this decade, just for, you know, for doing this for a living and having websites, like we had Grantland 2011 and then, the site we have now, the ringer, um, it's a 12 month a year sport now. And people care in July and August. Yeah. And that was not the case before. Whereas like some other sports, it's flipped. Like in no, baseball, you, you get to the end of the year and the, for, as soon as the championship's over, it's like the draft, Let's right? Talk about the draft. Free like, agency. Yeah, exactly. Where's he going? Yeah. And then this guy, and he might want to trade and we just get content out of it constantly. And then a sport like baseball, the, the two biggest free agents are still unsigned. It's crazy. And it's, Heading into February. And if this was basketball, we'd be having a heart attack. Like just today, right before uh, we start taping this, it came out. Anthony Davis demanded a trade from New Orleans. Really? His agent um, basically leaked it to uh, Adrian Wojnarowski, who's the top basketball reporter. Right. And carefully orchestrated on Monday morning to start the news cycle. 
it's just what basketball is now. It's 2019. Yep. It's like, if we're going to do this, I'm going to do this the right way. We're going to start the day with it. Everybody will get their shows out of it and then try to figure out where he's going. And that's what all we're going to do for the next two weeks is figure out what the Anthony Davis trade is. Yep. So it's just become part of what basketball is. You, you, you dipped into this lockout. We had Grantland. We started in June 2011. There's a lockout right after. Yep. And there hit a point where it was like, fuck. What are we going to do? There might not be basketball. And uh, I remember writing. I was so mad. I was writing these angry pieces about uh, the lockout. But one of the pieces, me and uh, another writer, we had Jake Caspian King. We wrote a piece called the Renegade Basketball League about what would happen if the players just said, fuck it, and we started their it. league. Yeah. yeah. And we, we created fake teams, and we did an expansion draft. And the idea seemed crazy but fun. But now in your movie in 2019 with Facebook and uh, the way we have cameras now and just the way you can streaming. be so accessible, streaming, you really could do this. Yeah, you could. And you could finance it entirely on all the broadcast rights and all the merchandising. And that's... Of all the sports, it's the one I've always wondered, like, why don't they try and take this over? Yeah, because you don't need as many players as football or no. any of the other stuff. But, I mean, the reason you wouldn't is because they all make an incredible amount of money. <laughs> you well, know? they do, and there would be there 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 might be a big change in the economic paradigm. Um, and and make no mistake, the administering of a major sports league is an incredibly complex. Uh, effort and so to yeah. say like yeah we're going to start our own league like okay no let's sit down and talk about what's actually that's going what it's going to take to do that and who's going to who's going to be running that like who do you then install in this position of authority to make sure this thing is going the right way but you know it is it is interesting to me you know the the movie sort of gets into this idea of to what extent do the owners in these situations have rights over the players' lives and what they do when they're not on the court? Um, that Well, I think the players have, have pushed the envelope on that in all kinds of ways. I mean, they're basically like they do whatever they want on social media. Right. And the NBA has no control over it. And the NBA guys with social media, they're the biggest ones out of all of them. And, you know, LeBron's just, he can have his own press conference after games. He doesn't need to talk to reporters. Yeah, right. right. Just skip the middleman. Almost like how Trump uses Twitter. He doesn't talk to Anybody. reporters. <laughs> now, there's a benefit to talking to reporters. But, um, yeah, I'm really interested in seeing where all this stuff goes. Because did you follow the Tiger versus Phil thing? Yeah. So the basketball I watched, version of that. I paid. I watched. Yeah, I paid it too. So the basketball version of that is Zion Williamson who is one of the most exciting prospects ever. Yeah. And then there's this other prospect, Morant, on Murray State, who's a guard who's um, basically like a taller Russell Westbrook, and he's also an amazing dunker. Those guys, between the end of the college season and the draft, could just have a dunk contest yeah. and be like, it's $9.99, pay-per-view it. And people would pay-per-view it. They would Absolutely. make money right away. And the NBA wouldn't be able to do jack shit. Absolutely. So I'll be interested to see if that stuff started happening because I think it will. And I, that was one of the reasons I liked your movie because you, you're foreshadowing where this world is going, which as eventually everybody's going to look around and go, hey, do we need these old white owners anymore? Well, and I think the, the real, you know, that makes me think that 
this college athlete thing has got to be sorted. That's out. what's going to come. This yeah. is this is this is just ridiculous that that these kids that Zion's are, are, in class right now and he's going to be leaving in late March yeah, and that's and, it and is generating tens of millions of dollars in revenue for yeah. the school, um, and he gets nothing. Like there has to be. This can be figured out. You come yeah. up with a system, some sort of point system or something where you're, there's some level of compensation here for these players who put in the hours. Like It's just it's hard to watch, frankly. It's gotten to the point with me with college sports. Like, I, I, I don't enjoy it the way I used to. Yeah. It's hard to watch because uh, I think, you know, as we know, catastrophic injury, you're done. That right. was it. You know, good luck with your degree. Yeah. The, uh, I think the NBA has the key to this with the G League. Mm-hmm. The G League, I'm really intrigued by because there's they don't really spend any money on the players, or you know, it's for whatever reason they haven't kind of gone all in on it. But they should, and when they do, they could basically these guys could come right out of high school and go to the G League, get drafted, and you spend at least a year in the G League, maybe two, and. Right. With the way everybody wants content now, that it's actually pr- pretty good content. If Zion's in the G League this year yeah. on the Knicks G League team, well, it makes sense too. Because in talking to the the three players that I interviewed, they agreed. I was sort of talking from the outside, and I said it would appear to me that of all the major sports, there's the biggest gap between college play and pro play in basketball as compared to any of the other sports. Yeah. And they were like, absolutely. They all said, like, I had to, I just basically had to forget everything that I was taught when I right. played until I showed up in the pros. They're like, it's just a different world. Well, we talked about failure before. It's all these guys were always the best or one of the best. And now you get in the league and you, like Mitchell says that in the movie, he played like what, 20, 22, yeah, 20 points, 20 like points 11 in games 20, or something. Yeah, 11 yeah. games or something. It's like, that's, I guarantee the first time that guy's failed at basketball since he was like, since eight. ever. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, that's part of it, too. The Celtics are doing with that now because they have they just have a loaded roster and they have these young guys that would be starting on any other team who are playing 18 minutes. Right. And they're not playing well. And part of the reason they're not playing well is because they know they could be playing 40 minutes on a different team. So it's complicated. Um, I want to talk about sports movies really quick. Mm -hmm. So a topic I've been fascinated by forever. I've written a shitload about sports movies and there's these different genres, right? So you have like the seventies is like the first wave, right? You get the longest yard, then you have Rocky and then like everybody ripping off Rocky with every different sport, basically all the way through, I would say the mid, maybe the mid eighties. Then there's a little more creativity. We get to the late eighties and you get like the field of dreams Mm -hmm. and those type of movies. But at the same time, we're still making Rocky over and over again with major league and those kind of things. Then it kind of dies down. Then it comes back again in the late 90s because they become profitable because you can put the one star in the poster. And then that leads to this next great wave of movies that the the room over the Titans and all those kind of movies. Then that starts to go. And sports movies can't make the same money. You know, it's just not a worthwhile bet for the studio. Yeah, because the foreign's not very big. Yeah, because they don't, especially if it's football. Yeah. So by 09, it starts getting really interesting. The, the movies kind of go to another level and they become movies that kind of use sports, which is what you do. You made it. You made a movie that happens to take place in sports. 
with no sports in it. With no sports in it. Well, what I was trying... that's where we're heading. What I would have wanted to avoid in any sports movie was... is the situation in which your your emotional engagement with the story hinges on the outcome of a specific game. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's just a trope that's in all sports movies, and it was one that I was not interested in following. Yeah. So what I liked about when Andre and Terrell McCraney and I started talking about the movie is I realized, oh, this is... This will be fun because it's it's never going to be you never like rooting for somebody to hit one at the buzzer. It's not. It's a sports movie without that cliche in it. Yeah. Um, and hopefully, I mean, anecdotally, people who've seen the film who are who don't follow sports um, find it easy to engage with because the issues in it are can be applied to almost any context. Yeah. Um, and so, and it's fairly you know kind of. I had in mind when we were making it Sweet Smell of Success, which is one of my favorite films. Very, like, fast, verbal, contained period of time that the story takes place over. That was what we wanted to to recreate. Yeah, it's interesting. Jerry Maguire, so I was 96. Yeah. It, it kind of flipped the script on what a sports movie was, but it still had the climactic game at the end. Yeah. But that was... I thought that was such an important movie because... It created this Rod Tidwell character that was like, this is the coolest sports movie character we've ever created. This is like actually a guy who could be in football and there was real thought to the nuances of him and the stuff he was going through. And I think over the next 20 plus years, that's been the most interesting way that sports movies has evolved is putting a little more thought into the character. Right. Versus just like, all right, here's the setup. And then, you know, and he's going to rally back. And then, yeah, yeah. But what's crazy to me is that they still make the boxing movies. I, how many boxing movies can we make? I don't know. I got approached by one. I'm surprised you're, you haven't made one. You're no, like the only director where, where, that's ever made one. Where are you going to go with that? I don't know. I'm, I'm, I just, somebody, I sort of stopped them before they got very far. And I just went, I, I have no idea where you can take this. Because there's been some pretty definitive movies about boxing and going in a variety of directions like i just don't uh, i don't know what my angle on it would be and how i would shoot it in a way that's better than the way some other people have done it i you know creed reinvigorated it but so much of that had to do with the stallone hook to it and the fact that we had a history with this guy and now he was back and um but i i think part of it i think the actors like getting in crazy shape and and hitting stuff. And hitting stuff. Yeah. And just like, it's almost like a rite of passage for great actors. Almost all of them have done it. Yeah, it's true. You know? But I, it's weird that we've had so many boxing movies and like zero MMA movies. There's no, I been mean, like part of the- Warrior well, and that's about it. Part of the fun of making Haywire was working with Gina Carano. Oh, yeah, worked, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And, you know, she was, it was so fun to watch her do all that stuff. Like she was- she was one of my favorite images that that if I had to pull out, it would be right up near the top of the list is this a shot from Haywire and we were in um, Barcelona. She's she's running as fast as she can run and the camera's three feet in front of her. I'm on the back of like an ATV yeah. thing with the camera, you know, on a on a hinge. And so, like, if this thing slows down or anything happens, there's going to be blood. And she's just, 
she's just, and she she can run like she can run yeah she doesn't she looks like somebody that you wouldn't want to have chasing you and uh shoshana the costume designer she's wearing this black jacket and the lining inside is like this animal print so you just see it flapping you know as she's running it's very subtle you have to kind of look for it but it's super cool yeah you know and i just i loved watching her run i loved watching her hit people like it was there was something really satisfying about this very arresting looking woman just like beating the shit out of people. Right. Yeah, it was just <laughs> I, I i loved making it You've you've done so much experimentation since you became super successful, and I always really appreciated that somebody was out there doing that. The thing you did two years ago, where you did Logan Lucky, and you're just like, "Fuck it, I'm not doing any of the, I'm not doing this old school model of the advertising and all that stuff. We're just this can be a word of mouth thing," and it didn't work. But it was an amazing experiment, and now that movie, I feel like I feel like a lot of people. That movie's heading in the right place from oh yeah people I, I, have seen it people like it but it didn't work why didn't it work because i would have thought with the internet and the influencers and all that stuff we have now that that actually should have worked uh no the studios were right about everything yeah um we didn't have enough money i i i i i was under the illusion that with a smaller amount of money used in a very surgical way, you could achieve uh, the same result. And we're talking about, we have to be clear what we're talking about here, wide release movie, like opening a movie on 3,000 screens. That's what, this is what I was trying to see if there was a lane to be opened up, you know, that wasn't with a studio where a filmmaker like me could create a model where they could put a wide release movie out for less money, more transparency in terms of how the economics work yeah and absolute creative freedom over every aspect of the release it just didn't work it didn't work twice because i did it again on unsane and it didn't work again we had 20 million dollars in marketing in each case it wasn't enough they were right you can't get out of bed for less than 30. so it's just a pure awareness thing. you can't get awareness you just can't and we tried very different approaches on each one like okay this time we're going to put the money here we're going to do this we like we it just didn't work what was the movie you made when you released it at the same time? Home, there were two. On Bubble, demand? Bubble and uh, The Girlfriend Experience. Yeah, yeah. Bubble was earlier, though. 2005. Yeah. And everybody got mad at you at the theaters? Like, this well, this is the end of everything. It was, um, yeah, it wasn't a popular idea. <laughs> well, that's their worst fear, but right? But it seemed inevitable. Look, what I think, I was talking about this yesterday to somebody, this whole windowing thing. That I think the problem... The problem that we're seeing now is people are trying to apply a, a unified field theory of how this windowing issue should work, when in point of fact, every movie is different. Yeah. Here's, here's the argument I would make to NATO, who John Fithian, who runs NATO, I've become very friendly with. Um, the minute Logan Lucky and Unsane, the minute I knew that Logan Lucky and Unsane were not going to work, I should be able to get that thing up on a platform immediately. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, not not that we planned to do it. It's just I knew by Friday noon that, so you're we, getting that like we were those dead. Yeah. And I just spent $20 million. Dude, let me drop this thing next week. Yeah. Nobody's going. Like, I'm not hurting you. You're. I'm hurt now. We're all hurt. Right. Because now i got to wait 
60 days, 90 days, whatever, and then it's a memory. And so that's, I think there needs to be some understanding that uh, you, you're never going to have one approach that's going to work for everything. It's not. So I think they should start having conversations about, we got this movie of this scale with these people in it, this pedigree. We want to go out this wide. Why don't we, let's say the window on this is X, and we've got this other movie that's a little more experimental that we're not sure about. And if let's have an understanding. If it tanks, that we can get this thing up quickly. That's That's what I would do. Yeah, it's still – I was thinking about this when I saw Star is Born, which I really liked. He did a good job. He did a good job. It was a good movie theater movie. Yeah. And I think that's the challenge these days, and it's a challenge in sports too, ironically, because the TVs are so nice now, and it's so comfortable at home. And it's like, do I want to go to 81 Red Sox games a year, yeah. or do I just want to watch the Red Sox, and I can be on my phone, and I'm not dealing with – assholes next to me and all no, that stuff and the coverage is amazing like yeah this is what america does better than anybody in the world is sports coverage the widescreen like, is has changed the game for all these different sports including basketball it's just yeah. much more fun if you watch espn classic or um the hardwood classics on nba tv and you watch the 2000 finals square. <laughs> the square and it's blurry you yeah. can't see anything yeah and you would see so much more when you're into the game i still i still value going to the games because i think you can pick a lot of the body language stuff, how guys interact, um, just how breathtaking some of them are. Like somebody like Giannis, like you just have to see him in person. But it's not the necessity like it used to be. And well, I and think movies a, are like that too. Yeah, there's a similar thing happening in movies in that when I was when I was growing up, there was a big difference between what you saw on your TV and what you saw in a movie theater. Huge. There's just not that big a gap anymore. Like these, like you're saying, these now we're in a 4K world you know, 85 inch screens, like this stuff is stunning. And when you combine now, we're gonna, I don't know if you've all had this experience of going to theaters where people like don't know how to behave anymore. You know, they just, of they, course they think they're in their living room. Like yeah. You're, you're like, wow. They're on their so phone. The glare of the phone is like coming yeah, out of yeah, the side of your like eye. Talking and everything. Yeah. They're literally like, it's their living room. So, you know, it's, I agree that there are there are certain kinds of films that really benefit from the the theater going experience. Get Out would be a perfect that was awesome example. The like yeah. that's a great Creed was good too. Movie. Like there's there's good theater movies. Yeah, there's other ones that it's fun to go to the movie theater, but you don't necessarily need to see it in the theater. And I think how people find that balance with trying to get this stuff on demand because we have. It's worked. We've seen it work with different things where there's movies I want to see. It's like, oh, shit, it's on direct TV already. Great. Yeah. I don't have to go to the theater and I'm paying nine ninety nine. I don't know if that's good for the filmmaker or bad. I think it depends. I think I think everybody on both sides, the people making stuff and the people paying for the stuff that's made are, are in the process of, of redefining what success means because the, the old definitions just don't apply anymore the business is completely changed and so i think it's important for filmmakers too to be clear about what they really want you know i think if you ask most filmmakers what they want more than anything is eyeballs like they just want as many eyeballs on what they made as possible and so for somebody like me i'm pretty agnostic about where where it shows up 
Yeah. Know, I just want you to see it. Um, we're, it's going to be interesting, I think, over the next three to five years as these companies begin to consolidate and really put down roots into this new Look, we're going to have a bunch more streaming platforms in 12 months. Yeah. Like these, all these big companies have decided, okay, that's we're, – we're really focused on that. We think the future is kind of heading in this direction. It's going to be interesting to see five years from now if somebody looks at the P&L statement and just goes, I'm done. Like I don't, I don't get it. I, this, this model, I, I, don't, I don't see how we make a lot of money in this model. I – I actually really like where we are right now because I think the next five years are going to be fascinating. Even like what you've seen with some of the stuff Netflix has done this year. They're making teen comedies. My daughter, like her three favorite, my daughter's 13. Her three favorite movies this year were on Netflix movies. They had stopped making those movies. They weren't making movies for people like her. I love horror movies. There's like a million horror movies that are out now because their stupid algorithms are Pointing to like, yeah, make horror movies. Well, it's a tricky thing because as tough as the theatrical business is, um, and the and the, the economics of it are are not very rational. There's also at the same time, there's no equivalent in terms of success in dollars of a movie that blows up. Yeah, there's no. You can have a hit TV show and it'll throw off a lot of money over the years and stuff like that, but. If you if you hit the jackpot on a movie that makes like a billion and a half dollars, <laughs> right. like it's there's just no other <laughs> equivalent of that in the industry. So that's why people keep chasing it. Like, well, it, like it's like the Fast and Furious model, where uh, the Decalogue. It's going to be a Decalogue. They're yeah, they make, make ten this, of them. They make Point Break, Point Break with cars, and it's good. And they make two sequels that are okay, not great. They do well, and then it becomes James Bond. Yeah. And now they're just going to make them forever until Vin Diesel, like he's going to be in a wheelchair getting into his uh, Testarossa Absolutely. or whatever. It's just going to go and go and go. Um, I asked Sorkin this, so I have to get your answer on this okay. just because it, it was my new favorite question for people like you. What movie over the last 15 years were you the most jealous of? Jealous of? Yeah, jealous. Because you're a competitive guy. There's just some movie out there like, oh, fuck, that's a good one. I wish I made that. Well... There was a movie that came out a couple of years ago called Under the Skin. It's a Jonathan Glazer movie with Scarlett Johansson. That's a masterpiece. Like, this guy's made three movies. He made Sexy Beast. That was his first movie, which is a perfect film. Yeah. His second film was called Birth with Nicole Kidman, which is a fascinating movie. Like, as close to a Kubrick movie as you can get without Kubrick being around. It's a yeah. very interesting film. And then Under the Skin is, to my mind, just kind of jaw-dropping the reason i think about it a lot is that again if this was a movie that came out when i was growing up everybody would have been talking about it everybody would have seen it it would have been it would have taken up a lot of cultural real estate yeah and this thing just it was just nobody saw it nobody talked about i mean the people that saw it was like wow this is really good but there there wasn't I remember seeing it with my wife, Jules Asner, yeah. who said not to say hello. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, we walked out of the theater and she's like, holy shit. Like that was, you know, that's a piece of 
cinema that reminds you of like what you can do with the language. You know what I mean? It's just such a stunning piece of work. And it was it just like it, it, in this country, at least, it might as well have just not even shown up. So I see something like that. And, and that was a movie where I, where I was like, wow, he's really good. I, I got to steal that. Like there was stuff in it that, that I wish I'd thought of. Yeah. I guess. Um, but that's a good one. It is good. Look, it's it's I like that answer, too. It's unexpected. So if you did traffic in 2019, is that a 10 episode Netflix series? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. There's no way you make that a movie, Absolutely. right? Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely, and well, they, they probably give you a huge did, budget. They did a series of it for a few years, not long after the movie. Um, I'm just saying now, but well, it's Narcos. I mean, that's what Narcos yeah. is. Um, absolutely. Look, I think I certainly went through a period, probably around the time I was doing the Nick, where if somebody broached a, a, an idea for a project to me, I, my first thought would have been, why is this not a TV series? Yeah. Because I do, th but I say that knowing and understanding that there are certain ideas that are movie ideas. Logan Lucky is a movie idea. That I is thought High Flying Bird was. I, I don't yeah, know exactly. You did that. That's not a series. That. Yeah, yeah, like there's certain ideas that really sing in that format the kyle mclaughlin owner character might have been a ted episode series though there is an nba ownership Him in the steam room with the coach's just, handkerchief <laughs> i thought one of the one of the underrated scenes was just like him on the him on his giant private jet with his reading his newspaper and the, the stewardess is bringing the fruit and it's like these guys are like aliens they're like oh, yeah. in a whole other world and they all know each other and it's like this little secret handshake club and I'm ready to go into that world because I know a little about it. I think, right. I think, you know, and you had he had the the wife with the dog. It's like just classic. Like it, like there's probably ten owners that were like, "Is he making fun of me?" Yeah, right. And they probably didn't know who it was. Yeah. Um, what's, no, the, what's your next one? I, it's funny you should ask. For the first time in I don't know how long, I don't have the next thing. Like I have things, but I have not pulled the trigger on anything yet so this is weird usually when i'm in post-production and we're in, we're in post-production on a movie now you need a next I, one well i have stuff i just haven't i'm not sure what three of them are movies and i'm wondering so but where where should i make these how should they be put out you know what i mean they're not movies like high flying bird you know that are kind of smallish they're they're in theory, movies that did come out and go into wide release. And I'm, I guess I'm trying to figure out where's the forever home <laughs> for these projects. I don't know. I would think this is a fun time to try to figure out what is the perfect situation for each idea. Because in the old days, it's like movie or TV show, and that's it. And now it's like there's 19 different iterations Absolutely. of everything. No. Even what you did with this, I thought was... Just really interesting. And I, I don't know what's going to happen to it. I, Netflix has a way of they can own the conversation for three days if it's the right thing. Like we just saw the Fire Festival deck. Right. That thing owned the conversation Absolutely. for five days. That was one. Talk about a scary movie. That was, that was 20 minutes in. I just like got the sweats because it's literally like I have nightmares like that. Yeah. Literally yeah, yeah. Where like things like that are going that way. Right. That was it was really intense to watch. Like it was I I, I, I was really anxious you've, when I was watching it. Have you 
Have you made like gone all in on a documentary? I made one um, a few years ago about Spalding Gray. Oh yeah. What'd you think of that whole process compared to a movie? Well, it was that was kind of a, a, a unique situation because what I decided while developing it was that we would essentially build a new monologue out of existing footage that had been recorded of Spalding yeah. over decades. That that I guess one day I was sitting around thinking, why would I interview people talking about the best talker ever? Like, let's just create a new monologue out of all of the work that he's done, all yeah. the interviews he's given. And that's what we ended up doing. We had 90 hours of stuff and we got it down to 90 minutes. And and so it became like a new monologue. Um, yeah, so that's cool. It was, but it was incredibly, it was also very, it was upsetting. Like he was a friend, it was a terrible tragedy and um, it was hard. It was hard to like be swimming in that for so long because I missed him as yeah. everybody who knew him did. Um, but I'm glad we did it. It's, a, I think, a nice testament to his, he had a gift. Like that's, I think people, he made it look, you'd go see Spalding and you would think, oh, I could do that. Like, look how easy that is. Not understanding how hard it is. Yeah. And you see other people try and do it and fail. And you realize his, apart from his performance skills, his storytelling skills, his writing skills, his ability, if you understood anything about his process, his ability to synthesize his experiences into a coherent narrative was exceptional. Why don't you direct an episode of Billions for Koppelman and Levine if you have spare time? I've told them it's all or nothing. Like, I have to do all of it. You do the whole season? It's like I'm Could you do that? Could you just step into somebody else's project and, like— I mean, it seems like something you would be you would have fun doing. Absolutely, my I, I almost I won't name what project this was. Yeah, I've always had a fantasy of getting a call from somebody eight days out from shooting a movie. Like, can you come in and like take over? <laughs> like we we've had a problem. Like, right. there's been a health issue or something. Like, where this thing was ready to go and we're a week and you're out, like a temp and I'm like, let's go. Yeah, let's I, do it. I would do that in a heartbeat, and it almost happened to me. Really? Yeah, on a big movie. But you can't say what the movie was? No, I can't. And it ended up, they they ultimately decided to just table the thing. They pushed it a year and went and got like another director. But there was a like two-week period where I was in a conversation where it looked like I may like, fly to another country and just like walk onto the set oh and my start God. shooting. And I was like, that would be awesome. It's almost like an NBA coach taking, like a coach gets fired eight days before the playoffs and you just take over like the Warriors. Yeah, it's just, I mean, my attitude would be, you know, the fact that I'm here and we're gathering footage, like that's a win. <laughs> so I would feel like no pressure to, to do anything but what I can do in that moment. But I think you have to do one Fast Furious movie over the next 12 years. Just bang out one. Car Just take stuff. It completely I hate car different. stuff. Shooting car stuff is the worst. Are you on those like big rigs? It's just, yeah, yeah, it's just figuring out. You know, whenever I see movies that have that stuff in it, it just, it just makes my head hurt. I just can't. I can't imagine. It takes so long. It's hard. It takes a long time. It's dangerous. I don't. The few times I've done stunts, that stuff makes me... I am not of a mind that anybody should get hurt making a movie, so uh, that uh, I, I I'd be the worst uh, I'd be the worst 
you'd have a lot of scenes of people talking about how awesome that thing they just did that you didn't see right, right. was. You know, I, it's, I'm not the guy. I'm not the guy. This was really fun. I enjoyed the movie. When is it? It's on Netflix February, February 8th. February 8th. So you can watch that. You think you'll then get, the All-Star like, Game comes the next weekend. You think you'll get the big top picture? Netflix? You talk to them about that? Probably for like, you need what, that. Yeah, like you need 20 like, minutes. <laughs> you need it for like 48 hours. Yeah. Uh, look, they... I can't wait to see how it plays. They've been great. Um, they've been very positive on the film. The trailer they made, I thought was terrific. I love the little the poster art that they did. I thought it was really cool. Like They've been super easy to deal with. You also had a couple actors in there that I just like. And it was like nice to just see them in a movie, including... The lady from The Wire. Oh, yeah, Sonia. Who, I just feel like she should be more stuff. Yeah. So I was like, oh! It was, it was I knew nothing about the cast, so I was excited. No, anyway. and I, I sent Bill Duke an email. I go, every 19 years, Another we're going to do something. Yeah, go, he was great. Yeah, he's awesome. Cool, good luck with it. Thanks for doing this. This Thanks, is great. Bill.